Looking for a unique gift? A new piece of art for your collection? Or a signed copy of my book? Head on over to FelixEddy.com. That's www.felixeddy.com. Thank you. Hi, you're listening to WXYZ live from the island of Santiago, and this is the Time Traveler's News and World Report. Time traveling news and information for the discerning time traveler from many timeline. I'm Fergus McCarthy. Today's approximate aggregate gate is the 47th of April. And now here's the post-apocalyptic report. As you know, the island of Santiago is one of the only islands above sea level in this timeline. No one is sure how this happened, as it should have been impossible. Now, scientists have proposed a number of theories as to why ocean levels might be so high, including the possibility that someone in an apartment in Brooklyn left the water running in the 21st century, and it's just been going ever since. New data points to the possibility that the Earth was hit by a comet sometime in the 33rd century, whose impact melted both polar ice caps. So far, no one has volunteered to go and check. The 27 Yankees will be playing an exhibition game today against the 2004 Boston Red Sox. The Red Sox are favored to win in almost all timelines, mostly because the Yankees won't stop smoking, not even in the dugout. Still, Babe Ruth said the team remained confident. The Sultan of Swat was quoted as saying they may have broken the curse of the Bambino, but they won't break the actual Bambino. Tune in later tonight for scores and post-game analysis. Dirk's Holographic Produce has been doing an excellent business over in Santiago Central with their new breed of vodka oranges. Customers are saying they are absolutely delicious, but don't let the kids try them. Owner Derek Jacobs says he is looking into expanding into a line of vermouth-flavored oranges. That's the post-apocalyptic report for this morning. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. And now we present the infinitely spiraling clock, the continuing story of one man lost in time.
Introduction Helen Anderson Quick, age 10, sat on the toy chest by the window in her bedroom, staring out at the stars twinkling out over the London skyline. The London rooftops were, she reasoned, the best part of being home at the house in London, apart from the Wi-Fi. In nearly every other way, the summer house was better. It was warm and near the ocean, and the people you met there were always wild and crazy. She would have much rather stayed at the summer home full time, but her mother always insisted that she get a proper education, so they always returned here. Helen was the sort of child who complained very often. In fact, she liked school and had friends. She just liked the adventures that they had at the summer house better. So she sat, looking up at the stars, trying to see if she could spot the telltale zip of a figure moving against the night sky. Have you done your homework? A voice from downstairs called. Helen ran to the door. Her mother was standing at the bottom of the stairs. Have you done your homework? Her mother asked again. Yes, Helen said. Will you finish it now, please? Her mother said with a slightly exasperated tone. I already did, Helen said, not moving an inch on her position. I will come up and double-check it for you, her mother added. That did it. She had already called her daughter's bluff. Let me double-check it before you come up, Helen said quickly. Helen doubled back into her room and sat at her desk. Her mother hated how much Helen disliked maths and was determined to make a scientist of her daughter if it meant doing all of Helen's calculations herself. Helen squirmed at the desk slightly as she stared at a page of fractions. She understood that her mother had done amazing things with mathematics, things which had changed the course of her whole life. But Helen did not see the universe through numbers and was much happier writing stories and drawing pictures. Still, it was much, much easier doing 20 arithmetic problems than it was facing her mother. There was a flutter at the open window. Helen spun around. A woman, dark-skinned but with bright blue curly hair arranged in a complicated series of hair buns, was sitting on the toy chest where Helen had been a few minutes earlier. She was wearing a long velvet robe that hid a pair of dragonfly wings that stretched down to the backs of her ankles. Hello, sweetie, the woman said, her bright eyes sparkling. Helen thought of herself as an ordinary ten-year-old. She loved every stupid thing that ten-year-olds idolized. She was skinny, loved to laugh, ran almost everywhere she went, and thought that tag was a sport that should be brought to the Olympics. She was far too full of herself for her own good and fairly convinced that everything in her life was going to work out wonderfully in spite of no evidence indicating that this was the case. She was a bright girl, ordinary in all aspects but one. Helen had a fairy godmother. Helen stood up, ran over to her fairy godmother, and wrapped her arms around her. Spring, she called out. Spring, which was the fairy's name, embraced her goddaughter with a smile that radiated outward and spread down to your soul. Spring's presence in any room was like a candle. She was a tiny spark of loveliness that radiated outwards into the darkness. Helen always loved it when Spring came to visit. She was the one adult other than her parents who really seemed to be interested in what she had to say. Immediately, Helen started talking, talking in a way she did with almost no one else. She told Spring about school, about how she didn't like maths, about her friend Brittany, about how her teacher was nice, but not so nice that you really wanted to go to school any more than you had to, how she was good at sports, but was great at art. 
In short, she started having every conversation that her mother had been trying to physically drag out of her all year long. Finally, when all that was done, Helen asked Spring the question that her mother would have preferred she started with. How are you? How long will you be staying? How are things on the island? Good. I'm not sure yet. And I don't know. I didn't come from there. I have to spend the last few days in Greece, Spring answered matter-of-factly. You're getting so big, I can't believe it. Helen stood up and started to head for the door. Mum told me that you were coming, but we should let her know that you're here. In a minute, Spring said. She scooched over on the toy box and patted the seat next to her. Come and sit. I want to talk to you about something. Spring's tone had shifted remarkably. She sounded much more adult and responsible in a way that she almost never did. Helen didn't know what to make of this. She sensed that Spring had some kind of news, but didn't know what to make of it. Serious matters were outside the realm of the relationship they had. What is it? Helen asked. Spring nodded her head and took a deep breath. I've been wanting to talk to you, Spring explained, about your father. It must be pointed out that the phrase, I've been wanting to talk to you about your father, has a kind of cinematic quality that does not inspire a great deal of confidence. It sounds like it should come with a bombastic orchestra score playing tense music in the background. As such, Helen gave the conversation a very pregnant pause before she spoke. What about my father? she asked. Spring smiled in a way that was meant to be kind, but had just a little bit of sadness to it, like a song in a minor key. Helen frowned. What about my father? she asked again, a little more tentatively. Spring laid her head in her hands and nodded nervously. I wanted to tell you that story about your father, she said, and why he's gone a lot. That Helen didn't understand and did not like to talk about her parents' relationship was the understatement of her little life. Certainly she had friends whose parents were divorced or who had never married in the first place. She was a modern girl, after all, that came with the territory. Likewise, she had friends whose parents had been together forever, as they would usually say if you asked them. Helen was just young enough not to realize how lucky these people were. Helen didn't envy them because her life was wild and wonderful, but she did sometimes get concerned about the fact that her parents' relationship did not always make the kind of cohesive sense that seemed to ground the relationships of her friends' parents, whether they were married or not. Helen's parents were married. There was no doubt about that. Her mother's wedding band and tiny engagement ring were still on her ring finger, and when her father came to town, he and her mother always stayed in the same bedroom. Still, there was no denying that the appropriate phrase to describe her father's visits was just that. Visits. He would stay sometimes for very long periods of time, so long that Helen wondered if maybe their lives were reaching a certain level of dependable routine that other people's lives seemed to have. And then, of course, he would be off again, and her mother would get that look in her eyes like she hadn't done any laundry for the last week and a half. Helen was sure 
that her mother loved her father, but there was no doubt that her father's visits were, well, visits. Usually he looked tired, which might not be surprising. Tabitha's father liked to joke that whenever he took her to school functions, she was the shortest child in her class and he was the oldest parent. But this level of exhaustion seemed to be visceral, as if he had just barely survived the last couple of days. All of which was too bad, really, because on his best days, Helen's father struck her as being a star that outshone nearly every other constellation in the night sky. My father is gone sometimes, Helen admitted nervously. So what? Your father hates that he's gone so often, you know. I oh, know, Helen sighed. She sounded defeated. Her mother had said these exact words more times than she cared to count. They were, in her mind, a consolation prize, a fancy way of saying too bad. It was the phrase of someone who was consoling you, and Helen didn't think she was ready to admit that she needed consoling. Helen flopped on her bed and pouted with such a dramatic frown that Spring couldn't help but laugh, and her eyes started to twinkle again. To start with, Spring began, your father has had a lot of names. My father's name is Keith, Helen answered, matter-of-factly, as if this was a pop quiz and she was pleased to discover that it was going well. Spring nodded. That is your father's real name, but he has others. How he ended up with more than one name and why he has to be gone so much are intertwined. And they started way back many years ago, right after the first time I met your father and not long after your mother met him. It's something that's very hard for your mother to talk about, and so I thought I might talk it over with you. Spring fluttered one of her dragonfly wings. She pulled a small piece of paper out of the green velvet cloak that she was wearing and handed it to Helen. Helen stared at it. The paper was so old that it felt almost like cloth. The ink on it was faded, and it was frayed rather badly. Still, you could pretty clearly make out a crude image of a knight. He was holding a spear and fighting a dragon. Helen was sure that it was supposed to be a dragon, although to her mind it looked like a fire-breathing crocodile. What's this? Helen asked. She was sure that whatever it was, it was very valuable. It's a picture from a 14th century manuscript of your father fighting a dragon, Spring exclaimed. It's one of those things that your mother has difficulty talking about. Helen stared at the picture, wide-eyed. Did my father really kill a dragon? Spring shook her head vigorously. No. The illustrator was working almost a thousand years after the incident in question and got the details a little muddled. Of course, everyone always thinks he killed the dragon, so I suppose we can't blame him. Everyone? Helen repeated. Spring sighed. Your father is one of the most beautiful broken things I have ever known. He's like the mystery of Edwin Drood or the Venus de Milo. You have to admire what is left and not worry about what's missing. Helen's questions were starting to bubble to the top. You say Mum doesn't like to talk about this? Helen asked. Spring shook her head. No, she acknowledged. Helen bit her lip. 
That she didn't know what to say was the understatement of the century. Large, abstract concepts seemed to be dangling just out of reach. Instead, she grabbed on to the one thing that made sense to her. You say there was a dragon? Helen asked. What color was it? Spring grinned. It was green as an emerald, and it was taller than a giraffe. Helen raised her eyebrows. You saw it? she asked. Spring nodded. I did, and that's part of the story. It is worth noting that Spring did not tell Helen the entire story in a single night. Helen was a child, after all. There were deaths in the story, and wars, and that most hideous of all crimes in the eyes of a ten-year-old, her own parents having sex. Some of it came out in months, and some of it came out over the course of years. How Spring seemed to know her parents' innermost thoughts at times was something Helen never figured out. When she was younger, she had put this up to fairy magic, and when she was older, she assumed it was gossip. The truth may have been somewhere in between. Some of the details Helen had to get from her father's biographers, most of whom were about as right as a stopped clock. Helen happened to be particularly judgmental of the ones who wrote in blank verse. Even Spring seemed to have different versions of the story as the years went by, which Helen eventually learned was in keeping with her father's aesthetic. However, eventually, over the years, the truth got out and the story was told. By that time, Helen was so wrapped up in the mystery, she had stepped onto the page herself a few times, and she understood what Spring had meant about her father being beautiful and broken. To tell the story of his life in some kind of linear fashion, where you started with his birth and went on from there, was roughly the equivalent of trying to follow the order of the drips made in a Jackson Pollock painting. Maybe nobody's life is really as straightforward as we like to think, since all of the moments in life touch each other in strange and unexpected ways. But this phenomenon went at least double for Keith Quick, the patron saint of complicated biographies. 
If you wanted to learn about the interesting part of the life of Keith Quick, the best place to start was on a day in the 5th century, on a sand dune in the Sahara Desert, with a dragon standing over him. Never mind for a moment how he got there, or why he was there, or if this moment was connected to other things in life. The answers to those questions will be given later. A whole, not on purpose, and nothing up till now. For the moment, except that Keith Quick was staring up at a dragon in the middle of the Sahara on what was a Tuesday in March in the year of 485. It goes without saying that things were going badly for Keith Quick. Generally, his life tended to swing violently from catastrophe to disaster, and there didn't seem to be any particular reason why today should be any different, or at least why it should be any different in that respect. In nearly all other respects, the day was vastly, extraordinarily, mind-bogglingly different from any other day in his life. Of course, it was still a disaster. The dragon that was staring down at Keith Quick was a particularly large green one. At least it seemed that way to him. He had never seen a dragon before, but he'd read about them. And as far as he could tell, this one was pretty big. Also, it seemed to talk. It had just said hello a moment ago and then referred to Keith as lunch. Keith was reasonably sure that this was a bad sign. Keith, for his part, thought of himself as looking like an average man from Nebraska born in the early part of the 20th century, but since the United States of America was a third of a planet and 1,500 years away, it was probably fair to say that at the moment he looked like an odd duck. He was about 25, skinny, with long legs and about two days' worth of a very light beard on his face. His World War I flying hat looked a little like what a monk might wear, although the goggles were something that no one had ever seen. His face was far too pale for life in the desert, and his eyes were a dark blue that implied he had deep roots somewhere considerably north of their current location in the Sahara. He had a nose a little too small for his face that made him look like an owl, and an expression that made it clear that he was going through the first stages of panic. Keith's panic ran deep to the bone. First, he was positive that he was going to die. Certainly this seemed like a logical conclusion. Keith supposed that technically he was a little too big to constitute lunch for the dragon. There would undoubtedly be leftovers, but this was small comfort. Either way, the dragon could kill him before you could say pilot flambe. Second, dying meant that he would never see his wife again. This might seem obvious, but it had unintended consequences. His wife, Alice, had recently accused Keith of murdering her ex-boyfriend. Dying meant that he would never get a chance to clear his name. Thirdly, as a logical consequence of these first two things, that meant that the real murderer was still out there and was probably about to do Alice in. Fourthly, they appeared to be in the Sahara Desert, which meant that even if he survived the dragon, thirst was probably going to kill him anyway. Keith was so worried about all of these things that he didn't notice that the dragon appeared to be smiling. Keith, in a desperate attempt to save himself, decided to try and talk his way out of the situation. Just so you know, he said defiantly, I smell bad. The dragon smirked. What makes you so sure? he asked. Well, it stands to reason, Keith said. I haven't had a bath since God knows when. 
I don't have a lot of fat either. I'm pretty wiry. The chances are that I will taste pretty bad. The dragon blew smoke out of its nostrils. I wasn't really going to eat you, he admitted. Keith didn't know what to make of this. What do you mean? he asked. I mean I have no intention of killing you, the dragon insisted. Although I will agree that you look like you would taste bad. You seem to be having a hard time waking up, and I thought a jolt might help. I'm a dragon after all. It isn't any fun unless I get to scare people every once in a while. Trust me, if I had wanted to eat you, then saving your life would have been a bad choice, wouldn't it? Keith blinked. You saved my life? he asked. You fell from the sky, the dragon pointed out. I caught you. Keith reflected that this was probably true. The last thing that he remembered before he passed out was falling through a hole in space and time. And at the time, he'd been a good 300 feet in the air. The odds that he survived the fall without someone or something intervening were slim. Thanks, Keith said, sounding like he didn't mean it quite as much as he would have if he had been allowed to sleep a little longer. He stood up and took off his leather hat. The desert air was oppressively hot. Where are we? he asked, although he already knew. The Sahara Desert, the dragon said. How exactly did you find yourself on the wrong end of the hole in the sky? Well, strictly speaking, it wasn't a hole in the sky, Keith insisted. What was it then? the dragon asked. A hole in everything, Keith answered. I suppose that's the sort of thing that matters to people that fall through holes, the dragon replied. Keith swore under his breath. I don't suppose you happen to know what an internal combustion engine is, he asked. The dragon shook his head. No, he admitted. Keith quick sighed. I thought not, he said. What is it exactly, the dragon asked. A thing which probably hasn't been invented yet, Keith Quick said, which is a pity. There was a pause and a silence and then a pause again, after which the dragon asked what probably seemed like the obvious question. Are you a wizard? he asked. Keith considered his answer. Where I come from, there's no such thing as wizards. Then again, there's no such thing as dragons either. To answer your question, no, I am not a wizard, at least, not as far as I know. The dragon thought about this. Where is this place with no dragons and things that don't exist? Nebraska, Keith answered. The dragon clearly wasn't familiar with the American Midwest. Where is that? he asked. West of Ireland, Keith explained. There isn't anything west of Ireland the dragon said matter-of-factly. Keith nodded. Not yet, anyway, he agreed. The dragon scratched its ear with the ducal claw on its left wing. Are you sure that you're not a wizard? You sound like one. The last one I met, he was a nutter too. Keith Quick extended his hand to the dragon. I'm a traveler, 
he insisted, and I'm a long way from home. There was a pause, and then a silence, and then a pause again. I'm sorry, the dragon said. It didn't take Keith Quick too long to realize that he and the dragon had something in common. Dragons certainly wouldn't be native to the Sahara. You're not a local either, are you? Keith asked. The dragon took a moment to survey the vastness of the Sahara Desert before answering. Is anybody a local? he asked. I have yet to find a place so desolate that someone wasn't willing to call it home, Keith pointed out. If someone is willing to call this place home, then I suppose that there must be water somewhere, the dragon concluded. Although, truth be told, I haven't seen any for days. Hang on. The dragon spread out his wings, flapping with enough fury to create a gale-force wind. The dragon shot into the air, circled around, and then leveled off at a hundred feet. He surveyed the sky for roughly two minutes before returning to the ground again. Keith whistled appreciatively. You put my sop with camel to shame, my friend, he said. The dragon scanned the horizon. You may wish you had a camel, he observed. There is a patch of green on the horizon, but it is a long way off. A patch of green? Does that mean an oasis? Either that or there's another dragon taking a nap on up ahead. Keith nodded. Thank you, my friend, he said appreciatively. The dragon shrugged. That seems like a pity to save your life, only to let you die of thirst a few days later. Besides, I need to drink myself. How long will it take to get there? Keith asked. Probably an hour as the dragon flies, the dragon said. Walking may take a little longer. I'll walk with you, though. I could use the company. The two of them meandered across the desert with the dragon's long tail carving an S in the sand behind him. The dragon was a magnificent creature to look at. It was at least 15 feet from head to tail, and its smooth green skin was iridescent and glittered in the desert sun. Its wings were like those of a bat, provided the bat was the size of a bus. It was wonderfully, spectacularly, exactly like what Keith had always pictured a dragon looking like. Possibly more so. Are all dragons as friendly as you? Keith asked. I wouldn't know, the dragon admitted. It's been a long time since I've seen any. Keith nodded. The last of a dying breed, eh? So it would seem, the dragon said. I've spent many years in the Far East looking for the last of my kin. My search was fruitless, and I'm afraid I may be the last. There was a pause and a silence and then a pause again. I'm sorry, Keith replied. He knew there was no apology for the decimation of a species that could sound sincere, but he did his best just the same. Keith Quick had lived in the past, the present, and the future. He knew that the destruction of other creatures was a common thread in the history of the human race. These are troubling times, I'm afraid, the dragon acknowledged. Most times are, in my experience, Keith nodded. Truth be told, I don't even know what times these are. I didn't drop you on your head, the dragon spat a little defensively. No, 
Keith agreed. I expect not. I came to this land from another time, you see, and I'm not really clear where I am exactly. The dragon clearly didn't see at all. You seem to be speaking in riddles, he observed. Perhaps you wouldn't mind answering a riddle for me. I'll try, Keith said. What's your name? the dragon asked. Keith stole a sideways glance at an enormous bird skull perched atop the next sand dune. My name, he declared, is Keith Quick. I am a time traveler and a pilot. I'm from the future, and right now I seem to be a stranger in a strange land. You are strange, I'll give you that, the dragon said. I am the great green dragon of the Golden West, consort to Princess Jocelyn of the Western Isles, and a one-time familiar of the Black Knight. Impressive title, Keith observed admiringly. It's all about making a good first impression, the dragon explained. I would have thought that the fire and the wings would do that, Keith said. You'd be surprised at how many people look at them as some kind of challenge, the dragon replied. Either the oasis was further away than Keith would have liked, or walking through dry sand was more difficult than he realized, or both. Their progress was slow. Still, the dragon was pleasant enough company. Keith wasn't sure why the creature had decided to accompany him. It was possible that the dragon still felt responsible for him. He had saved Keith's life, after all. But Keith couldn't help but think there was something else going on. Perhaps... He's as lonely as I am, Keith thought. There's probably no statement about the weather that does not border on the obvious, but the unpleasant quality of the desert heat is worth mentioning, if only to explain why the conversation started to peter out after a mile or two. Keith was reasonably sure that the heat wasn't going to kill him, but the sun beating down on the two of them was oppressive like a fascist regime. If the heat bothered the dragon, he didn't show it, except by respecting the increasingly lengthy pauses in the conversation. I've never been happier at the prospect of drinking plain water, Keith admitted when at last the small patch of grass was approaching. I don't suppose that there will be anything to eat. I see a palm tree or two, the dragon said. With any luck, we might find coconuts. Well then, Keith said brightly, I suppose that today seems to be working out pretty well. You're surprisingly cheerful for a man who nearly fell to his death earlier today, the dragon said. Generally speaking, I usually assume that any day is going to end with me dead in a ditch. That way, when it doesn't, I'm naturally better off than I expected. And if it does end with you dead in a ditch... The dragon asked. Then I'll be able to look down from heaven and say I told you so, which is as close as I get to the moral high ground, Keith explained. If the oasis had been right at the mouth of the ocean, it probably would have been considered one of the most beautiful places on the face of the earth. Even without it, it was still impressive, like a green jewel on a blanket of gold. It consisted of roughly a dozen trees and a few patches of weathered grass, which, when compared with its surroundings, made it seem lush and fertile. 
More importantly, there was a stream of fresh water, which implied a route out of the desert in a fashion that didn't involve anyone drinking their own bodily fluids in order to survive. The dragon and Keith drank deep from the stream and then enjoyed the shade of a palm tree. I suppose if we follow the stream, it will eventually lead to the ocean, Keith mused. It might, the dragon acknowledged. Do you want to go to the ocean? Keith gave the desert a hard look before answering. It seems like anywhere would be better than here. Anywhere might be, the dragon agreed. But following the water would almost certainly mean finding other people. Are the people in this area dangerous? Keith asked. You mean more so than regular people? The dragon asked. No idea. I've been trying to avoid them for the most part. The dragon had a point. It was hard to believe that a creature this big could be afraid of anything, but the truth was that given the chance men would try and kill the dragon, probably before they found out he could talk, Keith would have liked to tell the dragon that that sort of thing would change with time, but he was from the future and knew better. Keith knew enough about the desert to realize that it would probably get cold at night, so he began to gather some wood. He placed a few dead branches into a pile and looked at the dragon. Do you mind? he asked. The dragon lowered its head and blew a small stream of fire out of its nostrils until the wood caught flame. Better than a zippo, Keith said appreciatively. He sat down against a palm tree. Could have been worse, he thought. His wife Alice might think he was a murderer. Actually, at this point, she probably thought he was a dead murderer. And now he was stranded in the past in Africa with no way home. Well, at least he had survived the fall. Plus, his companion was a splendid creature. Keith couldn't help but stare at him. In a way, the dragon represented everything that he had gotten into time travel for in the first place. However, staring at something that you can talk to inevitably makes you want to come up with something to talk about. When Keith finally thought of something, it surprised even him. You said you were consort to a princess, he asked, somewhat hesitantly. Jocelyn, princess of the Western Lands, the dragon replied, though she would be Queen Jocelyn now. The speed with which humans get older is a difficult concept to accept. Is she beautiful? Keith asked. The dragon took a while before answering. Like the sunrise on a spring morning, the dragon admitted. Her face was a promise for a better tomorrow. And yet you parted company, Keith observed. When your irises don't form circles, it can be difficult to look sad, but the dragon seemed to be doing his best. I don't think I ever heard a story about a princess and a dragon living happily ever after, the dragon said. There's a first time for everything, Keith pointed out. There is, the dragon agreed, but this wasn't it. What about yours? It took Keith a moment to realize that he told the dragon he had been dumped. Alice, he said quietly. My wife's name is Alice Anderson, the mother of time. The mother of time, the dragon repeated. 
I can't believe you are giving me a hard time about consulting with a princess. If it's any consolation, I didn't love her because she was the mother of time, Keith explained. I loved her in spite of it. Pretty girl, Dragon asked. Keith nodded. Wild red hair and fire in her eyes. Her heart was always warm and her head was always in the stars. The dragon made a grunting sound that was almost like laughter. How did you meet her? he asked. It's a long story, he admitted. The dragon didn't respond to this. Instead, he turned his head to stare at the horizon. You may have to tell me later, he said. That appears we have company. Company, Keith repeated. He looked in the direction that the dragon was facing. He was neither as tall nor he suspected as sharp-eyed as the creature. Whatever it was that was coming at them, it wasn't in his line of sight. What is it? If we're very lucky, some Arabian knights came to kill us. And if we're unlucky? Keith asked. Well, I doubt that I'm the only magical creature in these parts. Don't worry, I'm sure that we'll think of something. Hi, my name is David McLean and I am the creator of this podcast. Thanks for listening, I appreciate your support. If you like, you can leave a review and subscribe. I promise that I am not going to read any of the reviews. I am way too anxious to do that. However, if you came this far, then maybe you would like to come a little farther. In addition to this podcast, I'm also the author of the novel The Time Traveler's Resort Museum, which tells this story from Helen's mother's point of view and has great pictures by Felix Eddy. That's all for right now. Next week, we're going to hear from a sphinx.